I'll be preaching from Proverbs 25, 15. Allow me to remind you of some context, or at least some principles that speak to the context of what we're talking about this morning. Uh, If you remember from last week, it may not have been stated in this way, but for clarity's sake, if you approach the book of Proverbs, this book of wisdom from Scripture, with the understanding that every statement of wisdom has its foundation and interpretation in the sovereign truth and person of Christ himself, you will be able to glean great wisdom from Proverbs and it will help you in life. As we were reminded last week, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. And if all wisdom comes from him and is in him, then we should be able to see his teaching and his insight within the book of Proverbs. The Lord, Proverbs 3.19, the Lord by wisdom founded the earth. By understanding, he established the heavens. So everything that we see is a result of his knowledge, his power, his wisdom, his reason. His logic. So, if you approach the book of Proverbs with the understanding that every statement of wisdom has its foundation and interpretation in the sovereign truth and person of Christ and who he ultimately is, you will be able to glean great wisdom from Proverbs and it will help you in life. And the second point I would like to just, this is all introductory, Second point is every statement is in itself stated in such a way that application is universal. Whenever we interpret scripture, we want to understand what is being said. There's a couple of theological terms you might not be familiar with. You may have heard them, but if you didn't know what they meant, they may have just slipped right on by. There is eisegesis and exegesis. Eisegesis is an improper interpretation of Scripture where you come up to Scripture, you read the Scripture, and say, this is what I think it means. That's wrong. You shouldn't do that. You are putting into Scripture your own understanding. If you exegete scripture, exegesis, you are taking out of scripture what it is saying. So we want to get proper interpretation. I hope this makes sense. So interpretation is understanding what is being said. What does scripture teach us? What is it teaching me? And then there is application. Interpretation and application. Once you learn what it says, it's got to be applied to life in order for it to be any benefit. You need to understand why it is being said. This week we study, this, as a, in the second week of Advent, we study traditionally in church 
the concept of peace. And as you recall the transition of Israel's history, the darkest period in their history between the last of the prophets and the birth of Jesus, there was no appearance of God. Totally silent, closed, cold. God did not speak. There were no preachers, there were no prophets. There were some faithful But for the nation and to the nation, there was no message. The voice, no voice from the Lord, no sign from heaven, no prophet was called for 400 years. The only thing they had was hope in the promise of Messiah. They had scriptures, they just had to rely on what was promised. And they had to understand what was said there in order that they might understand why it was said. Why was the Messiah needed? He was needed to bring peace. We need to understand where the conflict exists and what what has been done to end it. If, If there is peace, or if there is a call for peace, or if there is a need for peace, you need to understand that there is a conflict going on somewhere. So we need to understand where the conflict exists and what has been done to end it. Many of us are very familiar with Luke chapter 2, the account of the birth of Christ, shepherds on the hillside, being cannot help but some of them help but think some of them were asleep, but all of a sudden they were alarmed and frightened by a sky full of angels singing glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. At Christmas time we hear that declaration Ad infinitum. Peace to men. Peace to men. Peace to Let's just be, let's have peace everywhere. What does it mean? Are we going to put in our interpretation of it? Or are we going to understand what could it mean? Are we going to draw out of scripture what it is really telling us? Are we going to eisegete it or are we going to exegete it? Was the angelic declaration an admonition to be nice to one another or was it something more? Wherever there is a need for peace, it indicates the presence of some kind of conflict or in other words, some kind of war. We mostly understand why wars exist. Rulers around the world, it doesn't matter if they're kings or queens or emperors or premiers or even presidents, all have or exercise sovereign authority over their respective nations and peoples. And they don't get along very well. I read some years ago, and an historian went back and looked 
through recorded history, there has been about six weeks of world peace in over 6,000 years of recorded history. There have been wars constantly. There is no peace among nations. There is no peace among nations. They are, they are always talking about it. They are always trying to negotiate it. And the treaties they sign usually last about one or two weeks, maybe. No peace among the nations. There's no peace among the peoples. And I'm not trying to suggest that the church is any better. The church is, has been divided and at odds within itself for years. Just as a seasonal kind of illustration, all the way back to the time of Constantine, the one who, the one Roman emperor who made Christianity legal. dealt with a controversy then by a man, a teacher by the name of Arius, who believed and taught that Christ was not eternal, that he was created, that although he was the first one created, he was, just was not eternal, and that contradicted scripture. And it caused division in the church. There was no peace in Christianity during that early 4th century. And there was another bishop, another church father, or another teacher named Nicholas, who was a bishop, a pastor in Myra, a little town in Turkey. When Constantine organized and called the Council of Nicaea where they could get all of the bishops from all the known world to come together or representatives of, of, from all the known world to come together and let's discuss this, let's find out which is correct and what is proper truth. The legend goes that Nicholas walked up to Arius and slugged him. Nicholas was known for his compassionate care and ministry to families and children. And he was also known for secretly giving gifts to people who were in need. And he is the one that we have taken the idea of Santa Claus from. He slugged a man, punched out his lights. And there's a little ditty I saw on the internet that just made me chuckle. Up at Nicaea, bishops pause. Arius and Santa Claus. One claims a time when the sun was not. One says that's a heretical thought. Ho, 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 who's going to go? Ho, 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 who's going to go? Off with the right hook, good Saint Nick, down goes the dirty heretic. So even within the church, then and in now, 
there is no peace. We understand that the world is full of sinners. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We need to also recognize that within the church, even within professing Christians, there's still going to be conflict. So if on the night of Christ's birth, the angels came and said, peace on earth, goodwill toward men, what were they saying? Verse 2515, our text. Just got through with the introduction. Through patience, a ruler can be persuaded and a gentle tongue can break a bone. Through patience, a ruler can be persuaded and a gentle tongue can break a bone. We know that there are earthly rulers everywhere. How can they be persuaded for anything? Who has the final say in what is right or what is wrong? The argument is essentially why do wars exist? One ruler tries to impose his rule or her sovereign authority upon the rights or authority of another land or another people. Wars exist because sovereign rulers are in conflict and peace is needed because sovereign rulers disagree. It's a simple statement. And it's always been this way. Do we suffer war in America because our president and foreign nations disagree? Yeah, pretty much it's, we can go into the politics and I'm not going to do that now, but it's all negotiating for power and influence and control. When we look at political leaders, earthly leaders, we can just about recognize and see where the battlefields are, where the disagreements are. But we need to look deeper when we look at Scripture, when we look at what is being taught in Scripture about this idea that God has declared peace. What does it mean? What is it for? How do we apply it to life? The battlefield there is not earthly, it is spiritual. And that's what I want to focus upon. I can go to seven, eight, Romans 7.18 and other places. The Apostle Paul wrote, I know that in me that is in my flesh nothing good dwells, for the will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. For the good that I will do, I do not do. But the evil that I will not to do, the evil that I will not to do, that I practice. Now, if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. The Apostle Paul recognized that within himself was a battlefield. God the Father was calling him to repent, and it was a scrap, a fight, a conflict. And he said it was constant. He knew what he was supposed to be doing. 
and I think you and I know as well. You and I know and believe that there is only one ultimate sovereign ruler, and it is not you, it is not me. It is him. Has he ever been wrong? No. Have I ever been wrong? Yes, hundreds of times a day. Do we need to persuade him of anything? It says through patience a ruler can be persuaded. Do we need to persuade him of anything? No. I need to be persuaded. I need to be convinced. I need to listen when he calls me to repent. It began in the Garden of Eden when Adam declared his own sovereign authority over the word of the Lord. One ultimate, glorious, sovereign ruler, the Lord himself, created a world in perfection, and for a time it was at perfect peace. What Adam did when he sinned in the garden was equivalent to treason. He told God, I'm not going to listen to you. I'm going to decide what's right and wrong for myself. We are all sons and daughters of Adam and Eve, so we do the same thing. We are at war with God. Adam declared his own sovereign territory, and every time you and I refuse to listen to the word of God or refuse to obey him, we do the same thing. This is mine, it's not yours. It might not be chronic or continuous. It might just be a moment. Just let me have this little indulgence. You've declared sovereignty over that moment of time, over that time, just, just let, just, just this one sin until the next time. We are just like Adam. We are fallen, we are broken, and we we begin to understand why there is no peace between God and us. We are at war. By long forbearance, a ruler is persuaded. In the Hebrew language, the in the Hebrew, the language doesn't seem to speak about persuading a true royal ruler. Because the language in the Hebrew language, the grammar in the Hebrew language, excuse me, the grammar in the Hebrew language suggests that there is a, this persuasion is kind of like pulling the ring in the nose of an animal, persuading, leading. Doesn't want to follow, but you got its nose, so it's got to come along. And when it's talking about this ruler, it's not talking about God, it's talking about you and I. 
We're the ones that are stubborn. We're the ones that don't follow easily. We are the ones who usually don't follow happily. But he brings us along. I believe that's what the, the Apostle Peter had in 2 Peter 3. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. The Lord is long-suffering toward us. That word in the Greek, macrothumia, to be long in spirit, to be of a long spirit, not to lose heart, to persevere patiently and bravely in enduring misfortunes and troubles, to be patient in bearing the offenses and injuries of others. Stop and think, what kind of God do you follow? Just because he is silent and doesn't seem to do anything does not mean that he is not there. It does not mean that he is not powerful enough to overcome. It means that he is literally being patient and long-suffering, waiting for all to come to repentance. Forbearance, another word for it. Endure, another word for it. He even told this to the people of Israel through the prophet Ezekiel. Say to them, as I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn from your evil ways, for why should you die? The ruler that our text refers to ultimately is me. Through my own sin, I have declared independence from God and staked out my own territory, and he patiently endures my arrogance and pride and my own foolishness and my selfishness. Through our sin, we have all declared war on God. But through patience, a ruler can be persuaded and a gentle tongue can break a bone. And I hope you are convinced that it makes sense. This interpretation seems feasible. We are the ruler this verse in Proverbs talking about, is talking about, and God is being patient in order that we might be convinced, that we might be persuaded. God's long-suffering, God is long-suffering, and he endures the pain of our rebellion only to offer us the opportunity to receive his grace. I read the testimony of someone on their webpage a long time ago. He's not up anymore. I've even forgotten his name. But he wrote this, God did not save me while I was running to him. He saved me while I was running away, kicking and screaming and spitting in his face. That's how long-suffering and patient God is. We're all very familiar with the words. 
It came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And this taxing was first made by when Cyrenius was governor of Syria. And all went to be taxed, every one to his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea, into the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was a house of the house and lineage of David, to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. So it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. She brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the end. And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon him, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were very afraid. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people, for unto us is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign to you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with an angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God, saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. This declaration was not just a simple peace, y'all, or good wishes, Y'all be nice to one another. God was saying, this, my son, is a peace offering provided to swallow up the wrath that you deserve. And that's kind of awe-inspiring to know that this child was truly born, this child was truly given to die for the purpose of our redemption. Peace on earth. This child is the equivalent or the answer to Proverbs 15, one who says a soft answer turns away wrath. Christ Jesus was the soft answer that turns the wrath of God away from each and every one of us. We are free in him. We are at peace with God because of what Christ Jesus has done. I don't know where your heart is. I hope you know Christ as your Savior. I hope you begin to recognize that in your life there might be some place that you need to surrender him, that you need to turn over to him. Some place where there is still conflict existing, you need to just surrender and let him have it. Because he longs to bless you 
in his time and in his way in great, with great depth and great grace and great mercy. But as long as you cling to what is rightfully not yours, he will not permit peace. I'm not suggesting that you're lost. If you've professed Christ as your Savior, that's wonderful. You're his, but his chastising hand is still upon your life if you are in rebellion. He wants all of you. He wants everything. And we keep clinging to what we think is the most important. I hope this Christmas time you might find peace with him, complete peace, perfect peace, total peace. If you're not saved, find your salvation in him. And find life outside of the wrath of God to where you may have access to him through prayer and in fellowship with him through the spirit and in learning from his wisdom in his word. If you've been saved, but there's still, I like the alliteration of a former pastor of mine, you still have pockets of protracted personal sin. If you still have pockets of protracted personal sin, that means continuing sin, you need to stop. Because you might not be standing in God's eternal wrath, but you are standing under his, under his lifetime switch, under his belt, belt or spanking. He will chastise you. He will refine you. He will get that out of you one way or the other. And you might wonder why he doesn't hear your prayers, and you might wonder why he doesn't bless you or answer it, any need that you think you might. It's because he wants you to surrender. To fall into his grace and into his arms and rejoice in him. Peace because of Jesus. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we are thankful for your word and its mercy and its power, and we pray this day that you may help us I don't think there is anyone present in this congregation this morning who is so proud that they think they know everything. But there may be some who are privately proud thinking that most of this Christianity stuff is really not that necessary but it is it certainly is help us to give all to the Lord Jesus Christ in order that we may live by his wisdom and understand his calling upon us and that it is not something that is heavy or burdensome or frightening, but it's something that is good and a blessing that we may one day rejoice in his glory together. It is in the name of our Savior we pray.
Amen.